This presentation is from Design Research 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. I would like to introduce Ash. Uh, Ash is working at Tobias and Tobias. Um, and today he's talking on something that I had a big epiphany about <laughs> a couple of years into doing user research when listening to a transcript and, realize, and just going, oh my God, I didn't even know that that happened in the interview that I was actually in. So <laughs> this topic, I mean, it, it happens. And until you realise it or until somebody points it out, it's something that you might not even be aware of. So Ash will go a whole lot deeper into that, of course, rather than just of an course. epiphany. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay, so great that uh, Melissa skipped over the interview bits because I'm going back to basics, basically. Uh, Right, yeah. so the last decade has seen this resurgence of, of design research after it kind of evaporated for a while. Um, with, with all the startups and everything, there's, there's been a lot of people getting into this area. Um, mostly, uh, we, we've got large organisations that are just seeing startups eat their breakfast, uh, and they, they see this threat and they see that what these startups are doing and, and what these design companies are doing, what agencies are doing is they're getting out of the building. Um, and, you know, you get out of the building to make your product better. Uh, you know, seeing at least one person is going to make your product better. So the lean movement um, and the, the design resurgence has created this need. And many people ended up in the research role um, just by being proactive and, and getting out there and, and seeing people. So that's fantastic. But like most things in design, this presentation came out of a frustration. Frustration with seeing people uh, doing the wrong things and not knowing that they're doing the wrong things. And these errors, they put into question the validity of, of findings. Um, what's worse, there's no way of the researcher knowing that what they're finding is not correct. Qualitative research is a, is a particularly tricky area. Um, it's about uncovering and capturing people's deep stories and, and not the surface level. On one hand, it seems intuitive. I, I mean, everyone feels as if they can go out and talk to people, as we've, we've heard, and, and they feel that they're able to capture their stories faithfully. Uh, but research is often not done correctly. Uh, and when it's not done correctly, who can dispute what's come out of uh, the, the insights and findings. Neither the researcher nor the, the client uh, may be aware that this is something that's wrong in the first place. And so designs can then be based on faulty premises. And uh, it's something that I've seen happening quite frequently. Bad, bad data in, bad data out, basically. So quali qualitative research um, and interviews are so tricky precisely because they seem so simple. Uh, we can all converse, right? We, we do it every day and we do it really well, or so it seems. Um, when we do converse, there are so many misunderstandings and misrepresentations and, and things missed uh, that we're just not aware of because our brain is really good at pasting over these things. Communication is innate to us. 
Um, it, it's something that we do every day. It feels intuitive and accurate, but it's just not. Uh, it, it's actually complex and full of errors. So many of you know I come from a background in human factors, although there's a lot of new faces here, which is great. Um, so in human factors, we design for solutions where, uh, or situations in which people may get injured or die as a result of a, of a miscommunication. So it's very early impressed upon us um, how to track these things, how to look for leaks, how to look for, for, for errors, uh, and how critical it is to, to make sure that we account for these misinterpretations and, and leaks when we're designing systems. Now, my particular background is in aviation. Um, and in aviation, they've designed for this really well. A lot of people died because of miscommunication. So, in aviation, it's a controlled environment. We can constrain absolutely everything, and they have. Uh, pilots have to all speak internationally, have to all speak English. There's, there's only one language. They use controlled verbiage and controlled phrases, things um, like inbound from, from the south. You can't say it any other way. Uh, we use phonetics like Alpha Echo Charlie. We used controlled um, uh, articulations, like instead of saying five, you say fife. Instead of saying nine, you say niner. Um, you have to indicate who's in control of the air aircraft by the first pilot saying, handing over, and has, he has to wait or she has to wait until the second pilot says, taking over, before they can take their hands off the control. And so forth. It's one of those things that we control absolutely everything about it to make sure that there aren't those leaks or misrepresentations. Unfortunately, in the real world, we can't do this. So let's talk about the qualitative staple research, the, the simple interview. Um, today, I'm going to break uh, an interview down into its component parts, um, just to walk you through some critical concepts so you can understand why I'm often heard saying, notes are not enough. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of an interview, we have to dispel a few little myths. Our mental model of how the mind works is always constrained by the technology of the time. Uh, in the 5th century BC, Hippocrates uh, basically advocated an early hydraulic model based on the four humours, how they get pumped around the body, because that was our understanding of, of, of how things work. Um, and hydraulics and aqueducts were, were the technology of the day. Descartes, then famously in 1600 or so, uh, proffered the, the automata um, slash mechanistic uh, model, um, reflecting the clockwork and, and steam-driven uh, mechanics of the time. Now, at school, I was taught what people are taught these days, uh, which is the information processor model, which reflects our computers, uh, because they're the ubiquitous technology of today. Now, in the information processor model, our sensors are like video cameras, high-def video cameras with, um, uh, with good mics on them. Um, they faithfully capture all sights and sounds. And they stay focused as long as you point the metaphoric camera at the subject. This data is then logically processed by our, uh, and classified by our CPU-like brain and then written faithfully in high definition uh, to, to a hard drive, stored in our memory. Now, of course, all of you know this isn't true. It's not how things work. Um, 
but it's intuitive and it's easy to grasp and it's something that we can relate to and so it will lead us down the garden path of deceiving ourselves when it comes to understanding communication. So, uh, in human factors there's many, many models of communication, um, each with their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Some are extraordinarily complex, uh, so for the sake of expedience we're going to use the simplest one today, which is the transactional model of of, uh, communication. And it all starts with an intent. There's a sender. Um, that sender is the message creator. It's, it's the, the person uh, with the intent to communicate. Now, this person has their own physical capabilities, uh, the, the structure of their, their voice box, their, their motor skills, their, their physical abilities, um, their cognitive development, and so forth. That sender exists within their own background and environment, socially, culturally, and relationally. So for the social dimension, society uh, shapes the way a person communicates. Um, there's norms, there's values, uh, restrictions, basically, that society places on us uh, to communicate within specific limits. For example, um, greeting people, you know, how you shake hands, um, how you thank someone, how you apologise to someone. For the cultural dimension, um, it's determined by caste, class, race, ethnicity, gender, um, sexuality. Uh, all these things actually shape uh, the, the lifestyle and identity dimension of a person. Um, people who come from similar contexts obviously can communicate much better than people who come from disparate contexts. And for the relational dimension, it's basically what relation you have with that person with whom you're communicating. Uh, So you speak very differently to your partner than you do to your uh, parents, than you do to a a stranger or an acquaintance. Now, this intent needs to be expressed as an idea. So our brain has to uh, encode it, basically. Encoding is turning an intent into a message by generating content and symbols. Um, This is shaped by the mental models, uh, the the understandings that you have, the the, the past knowledge, um, your languages, your forms of expression. um, All these things that that, uh, the sender actually uses. So a well-read or or highly educated person um, or or someone who's multilingual obviously can put a lot more nuance into their communication than someone with a lower education. Then it moves through a channel. Uh, The channel is the medium that carries the message. This could be sound waves, it could be electronic signals, it could be light bouncing off a shape. The message is simply transmitted uh, information that passes through the channel. Um, This is the content and symbols in whichever form they're they're created. Then the message has to be perceived. Now, this is where we draw back to the information processing model and and why it's so wrong. So uh, perception and attention are intertwingled, pretty much. They're reliant on each other, but both have their their limitations and and, are often poorly understood. Attention is severely limited. Um, it, it's not like a, a, a fixed. Uh, it's not fixed like a, a camera on a tripod. 
Um, we can only consciously attend to one thing at a time. Even though people multitask, uh, what they're doing is serially switching. And we serially switch very quickly. So when we talk to someone whilst driving, uh, we're doing the serial switching. Uh, we're, we're attending to the conversation, but we're also flicking back to the road, uh, back and forth. And people can do three or four things at once. If, if there's unconscious behaviours, uh, things that they don't actually have to attend to, like breathing um, or eating or just grabbing something, uh, you can do that while you're doing something else. And it feels like you're doing, uh, attending to multiple things, but you're not. So when we want to concentrate, um, this is an issue because our attention is easily distracted. There's something known as uh, directed attention fatigue, which is neurological, um, uh, a neurological phenomenon uh, that sets in quickly and is the result of overuse of basically protecting our, uh, ourselves from distractions. Um, it takes a lot of effort to protect yourself from distractions, to focus on something. Um, Attention itself is really expensive calorifically. So uh, you think about how many calories you burn in a day. Um, your mind or your brain takes up about 20% of that. Uh, when you have to concentrate on something, it can bump up to 40% of that. So you think about going for a run. Well, doing some research can be like a marathon. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's why at the end of a research day, you just feel exhausted. Uh, so um, uh, the, the other thing I, which I just thought of before, which I really need to, to impress on, on people, is um, our modern environment really drains this quickly. Uh, we have so many external stimuli, so many things being advertised at us, so, so many things pushing at us, that it decreases our, uh, depletes our, our attention very, very quickly. And perception is tiny. Um, as, a pilot, uh, as a pilot, you're, you're taught, whenever you're looking for a conflicting aircraft or, or an aircraft in the sky, to break the sky into quadrants and scan them. Um, because you only actually see that much clearly, size of a 20-cent piece. Everything else is made up. Um, it's your brain making this lovely, seamless picture for you. Uh, your eyes circate around at 1,000 degrees a second, um, looking for movement in the blurriness uh, or things that, that are going to have some kind of um, uh, meaning to you. So, uh, yeah, our, our minds cunningly make this seamless movie, and, and it's so unintuitive because... You're looking here, you're seeing a lot of stuff. You're not actually seeing it. It's just memory. Um, uh, a, a fun thing to do to, to demonstrate this, by the way, is stand on a pier and look down uh, at, um, into the water and you'll see some fish. Uh, and I love doing this with my son. He's three. Uh, see some fish and then the longer you look, the more types of fish you'll start to notice that were there all along. Um, we... I live in Manly, so we're often on the pier. Uh, and it's amazing. There's things there that have been there the whole time. The other day, he picked out an octopus. It's lovely to see. But the octopus was there all along. He just didn't notice it for about seven minutes. Um, so I assume that num uh, a number of you would have seen the upcoming demonstration on inattentional blindness, but have a look at it anyway. The monkey business solution. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. So Jeff just had to...
to put that up because too many people had seen the gorilla experiment, and that's been up since 2010. Um, uh, the point of the demonstration, however, is, uh, is to demonstrate uh, inattentional blindness. The, the fact that when you're attending to something um, as simple as, as a ball or looking for a gorilla, uh, you'll miss significant amounts of what's right in front of you. Um, and that's to do with both your attention and the, the limits of your perception. So if you're doing research and attending to either facilitating or taking notes, you're missing most of what's going on. <clears throat> so after being perceived, the message then needs to be interpreted by the receiver, uh, in this case the participant. So just like the interviewer, the participant has their own physical capabilities and limitations to receive the message. They also have their own social, uh, cultural and relational context. Um, and decoding is affected by cognition and memory. So let's revisit those parts of the information processor model. So, of course, our brains don't work like a CPU. Um, we don't process thoughts logically. Uh, we are, however, and there's no good metaphor for this, we're really good pattern-matching creatures. Um, uh, the, the mind is basically a, an emergent property uh, of a whole lot of discrete little functions working together. Um, and they're very good at, at picking out patterns. Um, so good that we get lots of false positives uh, that we're not even aware of, which is why people are superstitious. It's also why people gamble. It's, you know, it, it, it's the cause of a, a, a lot of problematic behaviours in society. Um, uh, and it's also why people have systems for gambling, because they see patterns that aren't there. Uh, we also rely on just enough information to make a decision. Um, we, we don't have to consciously think about it. Uh, our, our mind actually does something called satisficing. It gets what it thinks is enough to, to actually make a snap judgment or a decision. It doesn't wait for all information to come in. And with the rise of behavioural economics, uh, we've started um, also classifying uh, the, the types of biases that, that we're sub, subject to. And um, there's... There's about 170 that have been classified and codified. Uh, there's innumerable biases that we're subject to. But they're not really biases. Um, it's just the way we are. It's just biases from our understanding uh, or uh, aberrations from our understanding of, of cognition. So the most meta of the biases uh, that we experience is the bias blind spot, um, which is basically our our ability to recognise the impact of biases in other people and then think that they don't apply to us. Um, and everyone does it. And it's uh, particularly problematic as a researcher um, because if you hold the strong opinion that you're not biased, uh, you're going to miss out on a lot. Because our, our mind's job is to constantly fool us, to constantly create this beautiful, seamless movie of reality um, that isn't actually there. Uh, it, it, it always pastes over everything and helps us post hoc rationalise everything. So, uh, let's look at uh, another short example of not only our pattern matching biases or, or uh, predilections, but um, how external stimuli can fundamentally change our perception. Another example of this uh, with audio, uh, auditory. Yeah, can't miss it when I tell you what's there. <laughs> so that overactive...
pattern matching is known as apophenia. It's, it's seeing patterns where none exist. But the interesting thing is, with just a little priming or a little preconception, it can completely change what you see or what you hear in this case. Um, and that's why walking into interviews with preconceptions kind of change what you actually see or hear. So, even though it feels like it, we don't store memories like videos to be played back later in high definition. Uh, even those really crisp, clear memories that you have, um, the crisper and clearer, probably the, the more wrong they are. Um, Long-term memory is actually constructive. It takes little snippets, uh, fragments of, of memory, um, and then builds up everything in between. It's called confabulation. It, it creates a new memory every time you... Uh, you recall it. Um, so every time you do recall something, if you are recalling it over and over again, it's always a bit further from the truth. So remembering that first kiss with your, your, your partner, uh, if you remember it a lot, it's probably really wrong. Uh, <laughs> so this is important to recognise when, when doing analysis. Basically, you can't rely on your memory. You can't throw away the notes. Um, more appropriate to note-taking, short-term memory. Um, it's tiny and it's fleeting. You can only hold four chunks. It used to be thought of five to seven, but neuroscience has disproved that. You can only reliably hold four chunks uh, in your short-term memory. Um, if something else grabs your attention, uh, if you think of something, if you see something, if a bird flies around, that's gone. <laughs> Uh, you lose your memory, and even if you don't get distracted, what's held there only lasts for 10 to 20 seconds before it evaporates, um, unless it's stored uh, as long-term memory through repetition or, or through association. So, to compound the issues of understanding, both parties have their own histories and, and environments. So where the interview and participants' uh, environments overlap, um, allows for a shared understanding. So that little bit in the middle where the message is, uh, is is where the shared understanding exists. If both share the same culture, profession, age, gender, etc., uh, the overlap obviously is greater um, and uh, communication will be much easier. If, however, uh, you come from different backgrounds uh, and, and uh, different relational uh, societal and, and cultural uh, areas, there's plenty of opportunity for misunderstanding. Uh, I, I mean, even when you are, when, when you do have, have crossover, uh, you could be, if I had a, a white man in, in my 40s that I was talking to, if he was an electrical engineer and I was, say, a career counsellor, the word potential would mean very different things to us. Uh, for him, it's storage of, of electrical charge. For me, it's, you know, your personal development. So once the, the message is received and decoded, the receiver now becomes a sender. They, they have to create this feedback channel. Um, of course, feedback can come in as many forms as, as the sender's message. It can be uh, verbal, it can be nonverbal. Um, uh, it can be an emotional reaction that, that you see uh, passing across someone's face. Um, it, it can be the, the content of what they say. It can be the way that they say it. And at every stage, there's noise. 
Now, the one type of noise everyone uh, knows about is the environmental noise. So uh, this physically disrupts communication. So if you're in a noisy cafe doing an interview, uh, you might miss a lot of stuff. Um, if you're in a dimly lit room, you might miss uh, a lot of stuff. Or some stuff that I was doing in dark, hot, noisy mine, you miss everything. Uh, then there's things like the, the physiological impairment noise. So someone might be deaf uh, or have a hearing impairment or might be a little blind. Um, uh, and that prevents messages that are being sent to being, being received as intended. There's semantic noise, so different interpretations of the meanings of certain words, like, like we were talking about with the word potential. Um, you can have people in completely uh, similar cultures um, uh, and similar uh, environments that might misinterpret a word because English is a complex language. The, the word weed uh, for, for one person in a specific context could, could be interpreted as a pet, pesky plant in the garden or, or something to smoke. Um, and then there's syntactical noise. Uh, you know, mistakes in grammar can disrupt communication. Uh, as I said before, someone who's, who's uh, multilingual and, and uh, well-educated might have a lot more nuance and that might not be picked up by someone with, with less education. Um, there's organisational noise. Poorly structured communication uh, can prevent the receiver from an accurate interpretation. For example, uh, unclear or badly stated directions could get someone more lost uh, than if they didn't receive them in the first place. There's cultural noise, stereotypical assumptions, um, cause misunderstandings, and this is one of the most common things in, in interviews. You come in with, uh, you're, you're interviewing someone of a, a, a specific um, other group, uh, and you know, it's only natural to have a stereotype, um, and you'll be layering that stereotype on everything that you're hearing and missing a lot of stuff because of that, that stereotype. Um, there's psychological noise. Certain attitudes can make the uh, communication difficult as well. So uh, some of the things, uh, some of the case studies spoken about today, when you start getting into difficult areas, uh, emotional areas, where, where people go through high arousal, getting angry or getting sad um, or, or dejected, that stops communication as well. So there's all these different types of noise that, that get in the way as well. So this is the transactional model of communication. It, it's the simplest, uh, most general model that applies to this, and you can see how messy it is. Um, you can see how many opportunities there are for, for things to get missed or misinterpreted. And this is just a simple conversation. The, the, this is the model of a conversation without adding the effort of reading an interview script. Um, or taking notes. Um, I mean, when, when you're interviewing, uh, you're having to constantly think as well. Uh, you can't, e even if it's a, a structured interview and you've got all the questions in front of you, um, you're, you're going to be missing a lot of stuff. If it's not, you're going to have to think about what the next question is. You're going to have to look at where you should delve into, how you, how you should be laddering this, how you should probe into it. That means you're missing about 40% of what's going on. So, and that's before we take, uh, take into consider note-taking. <laughs> so what does it take to, to write a hasty note? Um, looking at an ideal situation where you have a quiet, controlled environment, uh, a practice interviewer, an experienced note-taker working together to get the most out of an interview, um, 
we, we can calculate how long it takes to write this hasty note. There's uh, something known as uh, a suite of methods uh, known as goals, objects, methods, and selection rules, GOMS. Um, and there's a specific one that, that works for this called CBM GOMS, uh, which is the cognitive perceptual motor. Um, and we've got these great calculators. This is called Cogulator. Uh, and you can put in all the steps um, required to, to do this. Uh, CPM GOG, GOMS is good because you can do things um, uh, at the same time. So it allows for serial switching. So uh, to, to write the note, Kara couldn't, take track, uh, couldn't keep track of father's spending. We see that in ideal conditions, it can take 17.6 seconds. That's 17.6 seconds of not attending to what's being said. Sure, the note taker could be serially switching um, between writing and listening, and they probably are. But due to our limitations in attention, perception, cognition, and memory, what they write will mostly be inaccurate. Um, changing from the original thought uh, as memory gets dumped uh, and new information gets added. So that's the best case scenario. An interviewer, a note taker, and a participant. But sometimes in research, you don't even get a note taker. It's, it's you just taking the notes. Uh, so how much do you think is going to get missed there? And let's add, to the, uh, add the fact that the note taker may not share the exact same social, cultural, and relational context as the interviewer. This makes um, the area of shared understanding even smaller, as you can see. So what should you do? Uh, something that I haven't put down here but is very important, as, uh, as I mentioned before, was on the days that you do research or analysis, just shut everything off. Um, shut off social media notifications, don't check email, uh, don't watch TV, uh, don't browse the internet, because all that just depletes that, that finite set of attentional resources that you have. Um, down to mechanics of doing qual research, do everything in your power to record the interview. Uh, I know sometimes it won't be possible, but if you do it every time that you can, it's actually going to make you a better researcher. Um, so those times when you can't do it, at least you can pick up on uh, whatever uh, the, the most that you can. As we saw in the transactional model of communication, it's not just the spoken content you have to worry about as well. Um, this is why we love to use video. Um, Nonverbal communication, particularly in, in difficult uh, situations, uh, can say a lot more than the content of, of what, what someone verbalizes. Uh, you've got to look at the pitch, pay, pace, pause, intonation of, of how people say things. You've got to look at, at the expressions that pass over their face. Uh, you've got to look at how their body reacts. So, some tips for recording interviews. Uh, first, have a really good recording release. Um, if you have a very legalese uh, recording release, people tend to shy away from it. Um, it should explain in plain English exactly what the recording will be used for, how the identity of the participant is going to be uh, protected. The more you protect the participant, the more likely they'll sign a recording release. Um, and it should also provide for step-down options. So. Uh, a lot of people get shy about uh, video. Um, in that case, it should provide that you can audio record um, uh, or just take a photo. Uh, you know, 
whatever you can to capture. Um, and you should also ask for permission to follow up if the need arises. Something that, uh, some work that we've been doing uh, with Ruth recently, uh, we learned on, on the first couple of, of uh, runs of this program that we wanted to go back so frequently and uh, the government wouldn't allow us without these explicit permissions. So um, good to put it in there. Now, video is the gold standard. Uh, so um, always aim for that. But as I said, it can drop down to, to audio or just photos. If you're doing remote interviews, we like to use Ecamm's call recorder as it splits out the interviewer and participant video and audio and captures, uh, can capture at high res for you. Um, of course, always aim for a quiet, well-lit space with lighting behind you if you're video recording. And always check batteries, clear storage, and test recording equipment the day before the session because every time someone doesn't have this in a checklist, they turn up and the, the, storage, uh, the, the memory cards are full and the batteries are flat. Just because I like to know what other people use, I'll share the, the field kit that we usually have. Uh, basically, it's a, a two terabyte external hard drive, 64 gig uh, iPod for the secondary recording device. Always have a secondary recording device. Um, a 6600 uh, milliamp battery back, uh, backup. Um, a couple of SanDisk 128 gig class 10 SD cards. Um, Telstra 4G mobile hub. Uh, a Panasonic HC V770M HD camcorder is, is the best that, that, that I've played with lately. Uh, always have two spare batteries with it. Um, Rhodey Smart Lav lapel mic. Uh, they're, they're really cheap and really good to plug into your iPod. Um, and a, a Video Mic Pro, a Rhodey Video Mic Pro directional mic for the camcorder. And a Manfrotto mini tripod. So. Transcripts are critical to good analysis. I make sure my team always gets transcripts of, of their interviews, no matter how many or how good their note takers are. Uh, the first time a new TNT gets a transcript of their interview, they have an epiphany like, uh, like Donna did. Um, they're usually astonished by what they missed uh, while they were doing the interview. And also how many mistakes or misinterpretations they made. So for research ethics, we always anonymize everyone, um, uh, we, uh, our participants we're, with coding immediately. This example I've got here, T1PO3, is just Team 1, Participant 3. Uh, really simple. Um, the, the simpler the code, the better. Uh, although it's better to write the transcripts yourself, um, to really immerse yourself in, uh, in what's happened, uh, I realize that time often doesn't allow that. We use... Uh, something called Rev.com, it's US $1 a minute, and it's a really easy sell to clients because they love to have something tangible at the end that they can search the documents, they can pull out verbatim quotes and everything from it. Um, when we have to record in a noisy environment, which is quite frequently, I also use something called Sound Soap on the Mac, uh, which is really good at listening to the background noise and then just extracting the, the voice. That's all it's for. That's great. Um, so I do that before I send it to Rev because as long as you send them clean audio files, you always get a good transcript back. So if you're going to all this effort to faithfully capture what people have communicated to you, respect the stories by building in enough analysis, uh, analysis time. And I know this is hard to do. Clients don't like to pay for analysis. It's just fluffy stuff, isn't it? Uh, so 
what, what we aim to do is, uh, b because a lot of our clients um, work in uh, or have started in Agile, we always like to, to frame everything in sprints. Um, and it's good to create a good cadence uh, that allows for digestion. Um, and what I mean by this is, instead of just doing a big block of analysis, um, every day, build in enough time to do a little bit of analysis. So you, you see a couple of participants, maybe between the participants or, or at the end of the day, you can pull together uh, consolidating your notes and going back over um, some, of the, some of the audio and just cleaning up those notes, changing them to what they should be. Um, then at the end of each week, uh, we also like to, or at the end of each sprint, we, we like to have some time to, to actually do some analysis. And then at the end of the research sprints, we have a block of analysis. So this gives you the opportunity not only to digest uh, what we've experienced for, for later, but also identify gaps in research at each stage so we can then build in the time to follow up um, and find out uh, about the, our gaps in understanding. Minimum rule of thumb is uh, three times the research time for analysis. Um, business anthropologists generally go for 10 by, but I, I realize that that's really hard to do. Uh, so we, we always just set a, a minimum bar at, at three by. Um, and we've found that, uh, of course, clients don't like that. They like a one-to-one, -one, so we always hide our analysis time in our planning. Uh, and it sounds terrible, but you have to do it if you want to get something good out of it, if you want to respect uh, the, the data that you've got from people. Um, I use software like uh, Voice Recorder Pro or QuickTime Pro to play back uh, sessions at higher speeds when we're doing the first passes over them. Um, it's also great to follow along with transcripts and comb for insights to put on post-its for synthesis as you go through this, just to make it more efficient. So, listening back to recordings and reading transcripts provides you with objective feedback. So you can actually improve your practice as a researcher. It gives you the ability to pick up on your own mistakes and technique, um, whether it be talking over a, a participant butting in or, or having leading, uh, generating leading questions um, or going down the wrong pathways. It's horrible to listen to yourself, but it's always good. It's the only way to actually have that objective feedback and actually become better at what you're doing. Um, you can also compare your recording analysis to your, your notes and be shocked and aghast. Uh, <laughs> I can't impress this on you enough. Without reliving your interviews, you're just not going to improve as a researcher. Um, every interview recording is an opportunity to improve your research skills for those few times that you won't be able to record. Um, and I say those few times because uh, the more I've done it over, over the years, the less pushback I've, I've got uh, on recording, as long as that release is a really simple, good one. Um, proper analysis, reviewing recordings and transcripts allows you to relive the interview without the distraction of thinking uh, of the next question or referring to topic guides. So you have the opportunity to really listen for the first time. Uh, it also allows other people with other perspectives to weigh in on analysis and th synthesis. And it's always good to have multiple perspectives when, when you're doing your analysis and synthesis. Uh, most importantly, it increases the likelihood that your findings will be accurate. Um, and that you'll be able to extract the real gold from the research, not just preconceptions or, or surface stuff or, or nice little quotes. 
Um, I, I see a lot of, lot of people relying on, here's the quote, and it's decontextualized, without actually having the, the meaning behind it or the understanding behind it. And you need to get good data in to get reliable insights out. And that's why I always say, notes are not enough. So that's me. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Design Research 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.